National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Sometimes we're even joined by guests from around the world. And today, our three guests, two of our three guests are in the United Kingdom, and the other is in California. We're going to look at some unique aspects to the war in Ukraine this morning. Specifically, we're going to consider Russian strategic intelligence failures that led to the debacle that has been the Russian invasion of a sovereign Ukraine. And we'll look at the situation through the lens of Vladimir Putin. We have three guests to help us learn about this topic. Our first guest is Professor David Geo. David Geo is Visiting Professor of Intelligence and International Security in the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. He joined the department as a British Academy Global Professor. He's also Associate Professor of History at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, where he also serves as a History Fellow for the Cyber Army Cyber Institute. Uh, David is also Director of Studies for the Cambridge Security Initiative and co-convener of its International Security and Intelligence Program. Uh, Professor Geo is experienced in civilian, military, corporate, and law enforcement intelligence with expertise in intelligence analysis and overseas operations. He holds advanced degrees from Georgetown University and the University of Cambridge. Our second guest is uh, Dr. Hugh Dillon. Hugh Dillon is a reader in intelligence and international security at the Department of War Studies in King's College, London. He's also an associated researcher at the Center for Intelligence Studies in the Norwegian Intelligence School. His work focuses on intelligence in the Cold War and beyond, with a specific focus on deception operations, intelligence in diplomacy, and covert action. He has published wild, widely on these fields in academic journals and in the press. His first monograph, Defense Intelligence and the Cold War, was published with Oxford University Press. His latest published book was The CIA and the Pursuit of Security with Edinburgh Press, University Press. He's currently working on Writers in Intelligence, the Secret State, and the Public Sphere. Our third guest is Elena Grossfeld. Elena Grossfeld is a doctoral candidate in the Department of War Studies in King's College London and a member of King's Intelligence and Security Group. Her research interests are the strategic culture of Russian-Soviet intelligence, the Cold War, and information warfare. Elena holds a Master of Arts in, 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 in Intelligence and International Security from King's College London, and a Master of Arts in Linguistics from San Jose State University, and a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics with a minor in Russian Studies from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Having started her career as a software engineer and architect, she specialized in reliability and performance of systems powering the internet and e-commerce before moving into cybersecurity, focusing on the areas of insider threat, cyber threat intelligence, and cryptocurrencies-related fraud investigations. I should highlight that the opinions expressed by all three of our guests this morning are not the official position of any government or organization. It's strictly their own. So I'd like to welcome all three of you, uh, David Geo, uh, Elena Grossfeld, and Hugh Dillon. Welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks very much for having us, John. So let's Thank go you, ahead. John. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you bet. So Elena, you're in California, is that right? Yes, I'm in the Silicon Valley, or the Bay Area, as the locals call it, and it's just the sun is starting to come out. All right. We caught you early this morning. <laughs> uh, and David and Hugh, you're both over in uh, London, is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Just North London where it's cold and snowing. That sounds a little bit like Minnesota. <laughs> so we have a lot to cover today. Uh, let's begin if we could. And I want to talk about the, the catalyst uh, for the three of you coming together because you recently co-authored a, a paper on Vladimir Putin, his decision to invade Ukraine and the flawed intelligence and use of intelligence in Putin's national security decision making. Uh, what was it that sparked the three of you to come together to write this paper? And we'll get to the de details of the paper here shortly, but uh, let's just talk about, you know, the catalyst for the uh, the paper right now. Sure. Well, I, I guess it, it started really with, with Hugh and I, um, as, as most magical things do over WhatsApp. And just sort of, you know, Hugh and I were sort of musing on the idea uh, right at, at the, the beginning of the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, my Ukrainian friends would, I guess, want me to say the second invasion, the first being 2014. So 
uh, but we'll just use invasion for the recent one for short. And uh, and we just sort of came up with a, with what with, with academics uh, love to chase, which is a, a puzzle or a question that doesn't make any sense. And the one that we kind of came up with was that, you know, Vladimir Putin is supposed to be some sort of a, a, you know, a an intelligence god, you know, someone who's supposed to be a, a master strategist. Um, and, and why is that? Well, very few, um, very few heads of state uh, have any background uh, in intelligence, um, and even fewer actually at the the working level. Uh, and and Putin Putin enjoyed that, and uh, you know, and that that background you'd think would have conferred some sort of advantages in statecraft, um, and it didn't. And so uh, and so Hugh and I wanted to to answer the question: Well, what went wrong? Uh, Putin certainly didn't didn't get this right, um, and he he had some of the advantages of of maybe you know why why he could have gotten it right or why he could have at least understood the process of intelligence that would have led to better decision making. And so we we wrote an op ed um, back in March. I think it was published in the Washington Post on March seventeenth, um, called uh, uh, Putin's KGB past didn't help him with intelligence on Ukraine. And so that was sort of the seed corn for, you know, academics never want to waste a word or waste an article. And so we thought, well, can we scale this up a little bit? I mean, can we really, you know, op-eds are, 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 uh, are terribly short. And we thought, you know, there, there's, there, there's, there's really is more to this. Um, but neither Hugh nor I speak Russian. And uh, and Elena uh, does and, and is, a, is, a, is a, an otherwise god of social media research. And so we thought, well, you know, how can we, you know, how can we build the right team uh, that makes sure that we we sort of understand the right sources and the right source base to really flesh out the argument properly? And so, you know, with that kernel, uh, the three of us set to work on a longer academic piece. Uh, Elena or Hugh, uh, any further comments? I can add some because uh, for me, when the um, invasion started and everybody went on social media, as Dave says, and on Twitter, and uh, everybody was watching the second best army in the world after the U.S. Uh, step on a rake multiple times in the like <laughs> the first three days of the invasion, and you're watching it, and as a student of intelligence, you see all the possible errors that could have been made, all the possible mistakes that could have been done are then and there in front of you. And you're like, what the F, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, um, I wrote a, a, a short blog uh, for the War Studies website. And I asked um, Hugh if he would care to look at it and say, you know, did I go too far? Did I, you know, completely lose, lose it? And then that's when you said, oh, actually, you know, we think something very similar. And would you like to join? And of course, I jumped at the opportunity. And Hugh, any any uh, final thoughts on this uh, point? Well, yeah, David and Ellen have covered it very nicely there. But there was just a puzzle in here that was really kind of fascinating, I think, to us all. And you know, to, to us as students of intelligence and statecraft in general, you know, about the relationship between leaders and their intelligence machinery, you know, at the most significant, um, most uh, you know, important point in this, in, you know, in this, you can think of, you know, the decision to go to war. And you know, there's so much information coming out that it just seemed too good an opportunity to miss to really grapple with it. Fair enough. So the, the you, you've published this paper and the title is... Uh... The Autocrat's Intelligence Paradox, Vladimir Putin's Miss, in parentheses, Mismanagement of Russian Strategic Intelligence in the Ukraine War. And it was published in uh, the British Journal of Politics and International Relations. Uh, first of all, my congratulations to all three of you for succeeding in getting this uh, lengthy, exceptionally well-written and argued paper published in such a prestigious journal. Uh, what did you expect to find when you started researching this topic? And were you surprised at anything you found during your research? And I'll start with you, uh, with you, Hugh. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think one of the things that I sort of expected to find was an interesting dynamic between the nature of the government, the nature of the regime, and some of the you know, intelligence 
uh, aspects that you could you could see in the wall. I mean, that that, that was kind of kind of the point of entry uh, in, into the topic, and you know, the, the sort of theory, small t, behind it was that there would be something um, that, that that explained perhaps some of the weakness, poor performance, et cetera, et cetera, that we'd have witnessed in many aspects of the war, tactical, operational, strategic, um, you know, to both domestic and in the international uh, aspects, and that, that there'd be something in the nature of the regime that would help explain some of that, and, and that would sort of point to uh, a solution to the puzzle that David mentioned at the top there. And Elena? I don't know that I necessarily had any expectations except it can't be true right i mean they're supposed to have the best intelligence the kgb and then the 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 split and you know all the intelligence apparatus that works in russia and you know in the recent years they have not been constrained with any like democratic processes or institutions and you look at it and you're like no i can't something must be wrong right i mean it doesn't make any sense so For me, it was, uh, I guess, just shows my um, inexperience in those matters that I did not expect to see that much. <laughs> and and I, a little bit later, I do want to ask all three of you about that uh, very sizable uh, apparatus of uh, intelligence collection and analysis and whatnot that is inside Russia. But uh, for now, let's uh, let, let's stick with this uh, this topic. And and David, uh, any thoughts from you? Well, I, I did what I tell my students not to do. And so I hope they're not <laughs> listening uh, because I'm going to confess to something that I would yell at them for, uh, which is and I, I know this this sounds uh, terribly sort of hubristic, but I, I, I sort of knew we were right. And it was really just a question of showing our work. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't I, I sort of expected um, to find what we found. And it was really just just a matter of laying out the argument and um you know, just, just kind of getting getting it out there. And, you know, I, I know we're supposed to go into things with the research question, you know, and then do our research to to formulate a hypothesis. But, you know, I sort of turned it on its head and I tell my students, don't do it. You know, go, go to the library with an open mind. Uh, but I, I didn't do that. Uh, in terms of one thing that that I, I did sort of learn, I think, through this process was just looking at some of the polling um, from Ukraine and sort of the irony that that Putin actually would have been better served had he not had an intelligence apparatus at all. Like if it were just Putin and Google, um, and, and uh, I have a uh, I have a Russian speaking postdoc, and she also speaks uh, Ukrainian, and so uh, and so she was going through some of the the, the polling uh, from um, from before the invasion that looked at a bunch of stuff uh, in in U- across Ukraine. Uh, confidence in the government, you know, do you think Russia is a, is a friend or a foe or, you know, what language do you speak at home? And and while there's there could have been some evidence that you, the Ukrainian people were a little bit frustrated with their government, um, none of the polling ever suggested that the best thing to do would be to 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 be part of Russia again. Uh, and so the idea, you know, Putin's sort of fundamental thesis that if you just get rid of Zelensky or the or the Zelensky government in this sort of blitzkrieg, and then you come back, uh, you know, and then you 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 know you install your puppet, and then the Ukrainian people will be a cue. That was a that was a, a close call with democracy. I'm glad we're back under Putin's wing now. Um, you know, the, if he it would have been better for him to just have no intelligence service at all and just look at some of the basic polling because even if it didn't dissuade him from invading it would have at least showed him that that the, the sort of invasion on the timeline or with the resources allotted was absolutely farcical yeah uh, for our audience uh, you're listening to national security this week and i'm your host john olson our guests today are dr david geo dr hugh dillon and a phd candidate elena grossfeld we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so let's we get into our second segment here. And, and, and for this second segment, I'd like to kind of focus it on uh, discussion of Vladimir Putin directly. As most people know, and you've, you've mentioned this a little bit, he was a KGB officer assigned to Europe. Uh, then the Warsaw Pact collapsed, and two years later, the Soviet Union imploded. Uh, Boris Yeltsin later assigned Putin to head up the new FSB, the Federal Security Service, uh, which partly replaced the KGB. 
Uh, Putin quickly rose to power, likely using his knowledge of intelligence to sort of vault past his competition, maybe to destroy his enemies and to secure his place as a future Russian president. Which, what should we understand about Putin from his use of intelligence to secure his own power base? And why don't we start, uh, Elena, let's start with you on this question. Sure. Um, I think we're going back to my uh, favorite topic, which is strategic culture. So Putin as the KGB officer is very much a product of the organization. And as a former Soviet citizen, he is a product of Soviet education. And in both those cases, um, you should never be bothered when the facts don't fit your uh, picture of reality, right? I mean, that does it doesn't mean anything. So when Dave was referring to the uh, polls and the attempt at democracy in Ukraine, in uh, Putin's mind and in his intelligence mind, um, I mean, intelligence organization's mind, this was all orchestrated, organized, and paid for by the State Department. And, you know, the, the, the expression in Russian is the State Department cookies. When uh, I think it was Victoria Newland was distributing some cookies to the protesters or to citizens, um, this is the perfect example of the payback. The fact that people are willing to risk their lives for an idea rather than for material benefits is not it's not a good fit into their worldview. Mm. And so, you know, it should be ignored. And David? Uh, well, I'm going to get back on the academic track. I uh, got, got a little off putting the thesis before the research. Uh, <laughs> but uh, okay. let, let me get back on track with, with terms uh, because we, we love terms and we love definitions. And I, I don't speak Russian, but I, 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 there are two terms that I do think are really important when we're talking about Putin. Uh, and they are Czechist and Siloviki. Um, the, the the term Czechist comes from the the, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, um, secret police founded in 1917 under Felix uh, Dzerzhinsky uh, called the Cheka. And what this means is, it, it, I mean, it's literally a person who is a member of the the, the Soviet security establishment, the the secret police. Um, but but more broadly, a Czechist points to an idea, uh, and that idea. Uh, more broadly understood is that being a Czechist represents a belief system that the locus of power uh, properly belongs to the secret state, that the, 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 the secret state is, is the real pillar. Um, and, uh, and, and relatedly, uh, the Siloviki, uh, and so Putin is definitely a Czechist, which is where I was trying to go with that. Uh, and, uh, and that really is sort of his, his cultural imprint. Uh, and the Siloviki are the people that surround him. Uh, they are not the the oligarchs. Everyone wants to to say, oh well, the, you know, the oligarchs, the the mega rich people with the huge yachts, they have all the power in Russia. Uh, not really. Um, they have some for sure, uh, but and Putin likes their money. Uh, but the the, the Siloviki, uh, the, the heads of the intelligence and the security apparatus, and we can include the heads of the military apparatus in there. Uh, it, they run the show. And so Putin has surrounded himself uh, with with these people. Um, and then just, you know, a quick, I think, a point about Putin's past is that you know, he had always wanted to be a member of the KGB ever since he was a young boy. And there's a, there's a great story that's told by either Catherine Belton, I think, maybe and, and several others uh, where Putin kind of rocks up to the KGB headquarters, you know, in his hometown and uh, and says, hey, you know, can I join? And he's like 11. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, drink your milk and uh, and go to university and then one day you can you can come back. Uh, and 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 he he did. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, John, that Putin served in Europe. Uh, but there's an important caveat there is that he served in East Germany. Yeah. Uh, in, in a sort of well, we don't exactly know, but in a sort of counterintelligence role, um, not as the elite first chief directorate. Uh, abroad in the West, uh, you know, recruiting Western spies and stealing secrets. And and this is an important point. You know, Putin, although he he very much identifies as as a Czechist and in his professional background means so much to him. And uh, personally, and I think in unlocking who he is and what he does, uh, he was only sort of ever a, a middle ranking officer uh, who was never actually trusted or honored or privileged to actually serve in the West properly. So he was always sort of in the, 
he was uh, a, in the in a, the Eastern Bloc. A junior varsity player is what you're trying to say. That's right, and I just think that's it's a really important touchstone uh, as we as we 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 understand what comes next. And Hugh, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say there, isn't there, about uh, how he's learned to use the intelligence machinery to, to sort of establish himself and, and his cronies uh, as the, the real power brokers in in Russia. And I, I suppose that one, one of the points that's worth mentioning or one of the words that will feature quite prominently, um, something that he'll have no doubt learned in his uh, in his career, is corruption mm-hmm. and, and how the power of... You know, uh, being an intelligence officer throughout his career would have allowed him to uh, open doors by granting privileges, by you know accepting bribes, by putting people in touch with other people, and by you know exploiting your privilege as an officer of the secret state to both kind of enrich yourselves, to enable others, and to uh, you know just consolidate yourself at the centre of a web. And, and I think that's something you see from early on in his career, then certainly on to his time as deputy mayor that kind of followed him uh, along. You know, this idea of um, that you know, might be kind of a cosy, you know, Western construct of intelligence as being this kind of, kind of noble profession to serve this state, to help decision makers make better decisions and so on and so forth. We're, we're thinking in a different category here. You know, this is intelligence for power. And corruption is at the heart of it. And this is something he's learned. And this is something that he's uh, operated throughout his career. Yeah, and he certainly used uh, the capabilities of the intelligence services to uh, silence dissent from Russian voices, both internally and abroad. Uh, that's been well covered in the news. Uh, maybe the, I could ask the three of you to give us a kind of a quick summary of uh, uh, what exactly is the intelligence apparatus that exists inside, inside uh, the modern-day uh, Russian government. I, I think it might help our listeners to understand the scope of intelligence operations that are carried out every day uh, by Russia to provide strategic intelligence to Russian policymakers and, and especially to Vladimir Putin. And if you want to throw in you know, what the, the broader security apparatus is beyond just the intelligence uh, organization, that might even be uh, more helpful. And I'll I'll kick it to any of any of you that want to start us off. Elena wrote that section. Maybe oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Over to Elena. Sure. Um, so the current uh, Russian security um, state security um, layout is um, pretty much rooted in the Soviet one. So um, the military intelligence which is the GRU or now called the GU, um, remained unchanged, basically. And they are still in charge of military intelligence. The KGB, um, which prior to the dissolution or disintegration of Soviet Union was everything else, has been broken into separate pieces. The first chief directorate of the KGB that was in charge of foreign intelligence became the SVR. And the current head is Narushkin, which was who was very publicly humiliated a couple of days before the invasion, you know, for all to see. And then the um, everything else went into FSB, which uh, Putin was the director of uh, in the 90s. And um, so the FSB currently is responsible not only for internal security and the counterintelligence, um, and the protection of the constitutional order, however you want to call it, but they're also in charge of foreign intelligence in the near abroad, which mm-hmm. is uh, a short name for former Soviet republics. And so Ukraine would definitely be part of their uh, portfolio. Okay. And I think that's basically it, unless you guys wanted to add something. Well, I would just sort of, I think, uh, emphasize, Elena, what you said about uh, the, the near abroad, just to make sure that that's clear and what the implications of that are for our, you know, our analysis or anyone's analysis when they're looking at Russian intelligence, right? It it would be like having uh, the FBI also have, you know, primacy for Mexico and Canada or something. And this organizational structure where the Foreign Intelligence Service isn't primarily responsible for the sovereign state of Ukraine and other sovereign states, uh, suggests, I think, something quite significant about how the Russian apparatus 
and how Putin thinks about how they conceptualize uh, the near abroad, right? It's not really, okay, fine, there's this fake line on the map, but you're all really Russian anyway, so, you know, we'll get you back one of these days. Um, and so that organizational structure, I think, um, you know, while line and block charts can be tedious, I think this one really reveals something about Russian thinking about the near abroad and in our case in Ukraine in particular. And David, if I can just bounce off that, I mean, I think that's such a a, 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 a good point. And you, you can see that mirrored elsewhere back in the past, um, where it's part of uh, a reflection of an imperialist mindset, of an imperial kind of view of the world. And like, you know, the, the, the example I think of is, you know, back in the day when, when the UK had its empire, um, security in the colonies was the responsibility of MI5, the domestic security service, you know. No, no matter how far flung the colony, and and you know, th th there's like this you know, with lots of water under the bridge and and years gone by, but there's an analog here of this is uh, a very very telling of the kind of imperialist project, the imperialist war that they, uh, that, that is, is being waged. So, just from my perspective, listening to the three of you who are truly experts on this topic. Uh, the power was really given to the FSB, and it's really more for the internal security of Russia. And that's where Vladimir Putin spent the majority of his career. Probably no, uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, <laughs> it's not a strong leap to figure out that that's where he most uh, focuses his intelligences on the internal security side, uh, maybe a little less on the external. Uh, one more question before I have to take a, a break. Uh, for many years now, some have given uh, Vladimir Putin a, a great deal of credit. Uh, for masterfully playing a truly weak hand as the leader of Russia in his engagement with the world. Uh, he's had many successes over the years, uh, quite frankly. In your research for this uh, paper, did you uncover any situations that uh, demonstrated Putin's skillful use of intelligence to secure these desired Russian outcomes in previous international gambits? I'll, again, it, any of you. I, I, I think I can go. It, it's not popular to give Putin any credit anymore, right? Because now, now that now the we see who the Wizard of Oz is, yeah, right. Uh, but you know, the Wizard did have some 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 decent successes, I think. When you consider, I mean, what does Russia really have going for it, right? A half frozen petro state, uh, you know, with with uh, you know bad declining health outcomes, demographic outcomes, uh, you know, a relatively small GDP, uh, you know, but nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, and uh, and and you know, it, and it, a domestic security service that's quite good at repression. So you know, not so not nothing. Um, but Putin, you know, to give him his due, he has punched above his weight in the international system before Ukraine, and I think I, I think we we do have to acknowledge that. And and further, a lot of that's actually led by his intelligence and his special operations bureaucracy. Uh, you know, he he invaded Georgia. Uh, relatively successfully in 2008. Uh, he intervened in the Syrian civil war. He captured Crimea, uh, uh, you know, land from a sovereign uh, neighboring state with nary a shot fired in 2014. Um, uh, you know, meddled in Western elections, you know, not just the U.S. and not just elections, right, in, in, in ongoing sort of civil discourse. Um, you know, th and then he did it virtually, co uh, virtually consequence-free uh, by co-opting, uh, you know, business executives, uh, government leaders, uh, you know, sweet talking the people that he need to sweet talk and, and uh, you know, and twisting the arms of those he needed to, uh, to, to twist. And so when you look at the record of sort of the, the chaos and mayhem that he's that, that he's wrought and, and the, the really tiny price that he's paid for the, for those activities, I think you do have to say, uh, that you know he he was playing a pretty good hand until he wasn't right yeah yeah uh, so we have to take just a brief uh, break about a sixty second break to recognize our uh, our sponsor the cybersecurity summit we'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. 
And we're back with uh, Dr. David Geo, Dr. Hugh Dillon, and uh, Ph.D. candidate Elena Grossfeld talking about uh, Russian intelligence and the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, folks, for this uh, third segment of our show, uh, I, and by the way, we have covered the Russian invasion of Ukraine a number of times on this show. And, and David, you're, to your point, it's really the second Russian invasion of Ukraine. That That is a great uh, way to frame it. Uh, suffice it to say, the Russian offensive didn't succeed as uh, everybody thought it would back in February of 2022, almost a year a year ago now. In fact, it kind of failed spectacularly. Uh, we certainly do not know how this war will end, but we know right now the Russians have paid a terrible price for inept prosecution of Putin's war aims. Uh, and it seems that Putin is really under increasing pressure in Moscow to deliver some level of success. Can the three of you comment on what Russia did to collect intelligence on Ukraine ahead of the invasion and on the collection and analysis that led to the failed early stage of the offensive? And I'll maybe ask Hugh if you would start us off. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, a, a lot is coming out on this. Um, you know, we have to pro- you know, preface everything we say with, we, you know, we don't know exactly what went into onto Putin's desk, if, if anything. Um, on this point, but it it seems pretty clear that they were getting uh, a, a lot of stuff on you know the weakness of the Zelensky uh, government, the unpopularity of the leadership there, how it's a rotten state, and how really they want uh, to be to be back in the bosom of uh, Mother Russia, like uh, D- David was talking uh, a- a- about uh, earlier. Um, what they seem not to have been getting, which is, it seems as interesting as what they were getting, and we'll talk, we'll talk about both sides of it, is uh, good tactical intelligence. And you see very early on in the conflict a lot of you know, examples of you know, targets being struck that might have been targets a few decades ago during you know the Soviet era, but that now are civilian targets or and, and so on and so forth. You think you see a lot of mismanagement of the collection on Ukrainian military capabilities, particularly the, their potential to use uh, Western hardware. And and this sort of all, all sort of happened in the context of not asking the right question about the fundamental issue at hand, which is, you know, what is actually going to happen if we roll over the border? So, so you know, what, what's not being asked and what's not being collected and what's not being thought about is in a way far more important than what is being collected and and, and, and so on and so forth. And Elena? I think for me, the most striking thing is, as you said, they did not ask themselves what's going to happen when they roll over the border. As a site reliability engineer, the first thing you think about when you plan some sort of a change or some sort of operation is that what can go wrong, right? I mean, it's called pre-mortem and you do it for a reason to figure out what you know, what you don't know, what you think you don't know, and you know, uh, all the parts that go in it. So it's really surprising that there was apparently nobody to say, hey, you know, there's a bunch of things we don't know, or if there was such a person or such a, you know, unit or whatever, it never bubbled up, and um, that is reflected in what uh, in the leaks that the uh, founder of Gulago.net site um, uh, received. In that the analysis has to conform to what your boss expects, mm. and um, the questions being asked of analysts is, you know, this is what we like. You don't even give them the correct details of what you're planning to do so they can address the issue. And as for tactical intelligence failures, if you look at, for example, the space assets of the Russian Federation that are uh, fed into the military intelligence, it is very little surprise that they could not identify targets because they have now two, one, two um, uh, optical reconnaissance satellites that are working the rest of them are being launched and like falling down like i don't know i mean (laughs) pick the right um, analogy but there is nothing that even compares to the western intelligence um, uh, capabilities and so when the russian soldiers had to rely on soviet road atlases to navigate in ukraine i mean you know very little (laughs) else that you can say about that yeah and david yeah, you know, I, I, I had written before 
before and before I mean, you know, before working with Elena in particular, uh, that, you know, that, that Putin was sort of more of the same, uh, you know, that he was, you know, just another Soviet, whatever. And uh, and Elena had corrected that for this piece. And I think that was an important you know, revision that we made uh, because he's actually worse uh, from the intelligence point of view. And the reason is because of what he was already said, which is the which is the corruption. And the culture of corruption was so pervasive that, you know, there were there were fictitious assets, you know, fictitious human sources where, you know, you're not paying sources uh, or you're you're paying them, uh, you know, and pocketing most of the money um, and they don't need to have any expenses or that, you know, you don't need to run a, a proper agent network. Um, because you already know that the outcome is pre-cooked or predetermined. And so, you know, there's, there's a level of, of intellectual corruption, you know, as well as actual corruption, uh, and because the process is so distorted. And I think it's worth just sort of zooming back out on why it's, you know, why, you know, why should we feel so sorry for these autocrats de- dealing with intelligence, you know, <laughs> and, and it's because it gets to the very nature of what intelligence is for, uh, you know, as Hugh mentioned, uh, it, it's to narrow the cone of uncertainty, uh, or as Elena said, you know, to do some kind of pre-mortem to say, hey, what could go wrong um, in the US, you know, as an intelligence professional, you know, I want my bosses to be informed and to understand the world better. And in an autocratic regime, the word intelligence just it just doesn't mean foreknowledge of the enemy or any of these classical definitions of intelligence that we like to bat around. It, it really means securing the party or securing the Politburo or in Putin's case or, you know, Kim Jong Un's case or, or Saddam Hussein's case, uh, you know, uh, the, to to um, to to secure the the the, the power and the personhood uh, of the leader and how you do that is by crushing dissent and by removing uh, political rivals um, like Boris Nemtsov, you know, shot in the back um, or, uh, or or like just right outside the Kremlin or any of the journalists, you know, Anna Polakovskaya, you know, murdered on Putin's birthday. Um, and so that's really where the emphasis lies. And so they have this behemoth, but the, the behemoth isn't focused on the things that we in the West would, would sort of think that it might be focused on. And this approach to intelligence and security le- leads also, I think, to bad outcomes because it's not evidence-based, as, as, you know, as, as both of my, my co-authors have said. It's based on, you know, what Putin wants to hear. And, and Elena had, had already mentioned uh, that you know, when you have a bunch of sycophants, you, you, you're setting the conditions for, uh, for, for your, your bureaucracy to not serve you well, uh, you know, and again, I think as as, uh, as Elena mentioned that that uh, when when Putin um, was asking his his national security establishment, you know, hey, should we go no go? And Narishkin was like, oh, maybe I don't know. And then uh, and then Putin, um, you know, really sort of laid into him. And uh, and some would say, you know, it, it it takes being in Narishkin's mind to know if he's humiliated or not. But certainly, everyone saw uh, what what happened. And so, and look, and even AM, uh, the, the head of the, the fifth department, which was responsible for Ukraine was actually briefly arrested. And I don't think we quite know what that means. He was subsequently, uh, let go. Uh, so we, you know, I, I don't think we, we know exactly enough to, to say for sure, but, you know, I guess the point is, you know, are the agencies to blame? Uh, yeah, in part, they, they, they sure are because they're, they're cooking the, the books for Putin. But at the end of the day, and as I think the article points out, you know, Putin is the one who who uh, who who wants the books cooked in a certain way and they know the recipe. And uh, and so that's that, that's, I think, how we ended up where we are. So not only is a uh, dissent not allowed in speaking out against Putin as the leader, but even within the the security establishment, the intelligence establishment, uh, dissent from whatever the decision that's been made uh, is also not allowed. Is that what I'm hearing? Inside Russia? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a, a fair summing up of it, bro- broadly speaking. I mean, I, I, you know, the, 
you probably wouldn't want to make a sweeping statement about that being true in all times at all places. But when it comes to Ukraine, there's clearly a particular itch there that Putin wanted to scratch. And uh, to, to put it crudely, and you look at you know, his his essay, you know, that that tract he wrote, you know, on the historical unity of uh, Ukraine and the Russian peoples, or, or words to, to that effect, you know, setting out in rather a weird way, his view on the matter. I mean, you can see pretty clearly that this is not a topic that is going to, uh, that is going to welcome pushback on, for example, you know, if the poor, you know, mid-level career officer X wants to maybe ever so gently suggest up the chain that this isn't going to go as well as, you know, the master of the Kremlin thinks. You know, you know there's clearly a... a space there that people aren't going to want to go, given the frequency with which people get pushed out of windows or, you know, meet untimely ends and that kind of stuff. So, and you know, and it's it's this, you know, what's quite interesting in the case is this kind of chronic lack of self-awareness that Putin has, where he's clearly, he must know that his system is corrupt because he's been engaged in the corruption and he presumably had to play this game at some point in his career, but he clearly hasn't been able to see that now, as the manager of that system, he's built himself this rotten platform on which to, you know, on, on which to place his his legacy. And now he's kind of you know, furiously trying to, you know, flap his arms as he's falling down off the edge of the cliff, or to mix my metaphors. So, so let me ask you this. So, we the first question here that I just asked you on this topic is with the decisions that led up to the invasion, the the poor intelligence, the poor decision making on Putin's part. Uh, the three of you, since you've done this research, uh, do you see Russian intelligence learning from their early failures ahead of the war and the early days of the war? Uh, we're almost a year into the conflict now. Are the Russians getting better at this point in assessing Ukraine's center of gravity or Ukrainian command and control capabilities, tactics, or anything else of tremendous importance in time of war? Are the Russians learning from their mistakes? Well, I, I think it would be reasonably safe to say that in certain ways they are, because they are adapting in how they're fighting, you know, just learning to stay out of the, the range of HIMARS, etc., learning how to, you know, how to survive a, a little bit better. Um, whether or not Putin's decision making is improving owing to intelligence reports, or whether or not the bureaucracy is functioning as you might wish your intelligence bureaucracy to, to function, I, I would suggest the jury's still out on that because it doesn't seem uh, that important uh, a thing to him. And, uh, you know, what, what he wants to do clearly is secure some kind of uh, legacy point out of this. And, you know, the, a, a report saying, it's not going as well as we'd like, and you know the West appears to be holding. And oh, look, there's more tanks coming, um, and that they're going to have this effect on on our capacity to fight. It probably still isn't that welcome. Mm-hmm. Elena yeah, or David, I would, I would, I would agree ahead. with that. Yeah, I think they are getting better. I mean, they are. They must be learning on the tactical level, right? And because there were many reports of uh, successful. Um, uh, FSB use of Telegram um, app tracking in the occupied territories. And there were uh, actually yesterday or the day ago, um, a report about the coordinated nature of cyber attacks with, um, you know, military attacks. Um, but the the one, like even on a tactical level, the problem that remains is the disconnect and the miscommunication between the different branches of intelligence. So, for example, uh, for artillery and missile directions, um, the FSB gets results from people, you know, squeezing out of them, you know, inspecting their phones, torturing them and whatever. But then they can't pass it on to the intelligence units so they can correct intelligence because they're saying, oh, yeah, next to Kharkov, there is some um, Ukrainian position and the people who are in charge of it are saying, okay, where exactly next to Kharkov? And they're like, oh, you know, somewhere there, which is not exactly how intelligence uh, works when you're trying to uh, correct your artillery, but they will not allow access to the prisoners from the other units. And so they're still each stuck in their silo without ability to 
properly communicate or like effectively communicate. So there are some improvements on tactical level, but I think I agree with you and David that on you know upper um, layers, it's still everything is fine. It, it might be worth saying something uh, about their counterintelligence posture um, because I, I I see them still making the same mistakes that they've done. Uh, previously, and some of those I think are ignorance, and some of those are they just don't have it. Uh, the ignorance one, for instance, would be, uh, you know, conscripts, you know, not being properly properly instructed uh, to not, let's say, you know, uh, tag uh, their, you know, social media geo tagged pictures, uh, you know, th that kind of thing. And I think that caused um, the, the Wagners or, some, or or conscripts, I can't remember, some some grief. Uh, not too long ago, because the the Ukrainians are are seeing this, and uh, this is this is wonderful targeting intelligence that that you know certainly they, they're not making Ukrainians work hard for. Uh, and the second one, I think, um, is uh, you know one thing they just can't do is th they don't have enough encrypted radios uh, to communicate, and so the Ukrainians, you know, even if they know that they shouldn't be speaking in the clear, uh, they are because they just don't have the equipment to do it properly. And so from a counterintelligence point of view, even if even if they, they, they've now learned the lesson, they can't seem to fix it uh, in a timely manner. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Dr. Hugh Dillon, Dr. David Geo, and uh, Ph.D. candidate Elena Grossfeld. Uh, we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, we're in the uh, final quarter of our show this morning. Uh, your article uh, discusses Russian strategic intelligence failures and Putin's failure, frankly, in not anticipating the unified response from the West to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and frankly, from the world. Can you go into a little more detail on that point? Uh, why, why do you think Putin so badly miscalculated the response from both NATO and, e and the EU to totally two separate entities but very closely aligned? Uh, as well as other nations that have condemned his actions in the invasion. And, uh, David, let's go ahead and start with you. Sure. Uh, you know, th this is where I think from a certain perspective, uh, one could forgive Putin for getting this wrong, um, because history was sort of on his side, actually. And so if you, I, if agree. You look, <laughs> I, I agree. I <laughs> agree. If you're looking at a trend analysis, you know, I already sort of gave you the, the greatest hits of, of Putin's rap sheet. Um but, you know, look, I mean, the, the EU and, and the U.S. didn't respond in any real way to any number of outrages. Um, I can't even remember the, 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 the rap sheet that I gave, um, you know, assassinating uh, people in Berlin parks. Um, you know, the, it was just the, you know, poisoning people, you know, uh, Alexander Litvinenko, you know, as, as far back as 2006 with Polonium 210 in London. And, uh, you know, the 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 British uh, establishment was like, oh, that's a shame. But there's an awful lot of mo Russian money filtering through our law firms and our banks, um, you know, and our luxury car dealers and our real estate sector. So, you know, what's a defector? Let, let, let's let's leave this uh, leave this to, to go on. Um, and that was actually the same response uh, after uh, the uh, the invasion in 2014. When uh, one of these, uh, one of my, my favorite paparazzi pictures, which is not a, a phrase I say a lot, um, but uh, there was a guy with a with a really long telephoto lens, and you know there's 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 classified information cover sheets for a reason, and the guy left uh, a, 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 a National Security Council meeting at Number Ten uh, Downing Street, and he didn't put his notes under uh, a cover sheet, and and uh, and a photographer got a picture of it. And what it said was, we're not going to basically do anything. We're not going to close the city of London, a.k.a. banking, uh, to the Russians as a result of this. And I think that sort of, you know, let you know that, you know, there was no appetite, uh, you know, sanction here, sanction there. Uh, and then it, it went worse instead of ignoring it, um, you know, in uh, in 28, uh, I think it was in 20, in 2018, uh, when um, when then President Trump met uh, Putin in Helsinki and Putin was like, you know, I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. And and Trump said, well, uh, you know, I I don't see why it would be him uh, when, you know, when his intelligence community was you know screaming till they were blue in the face uh, th that it was. 
And so, you know, if you're if you're Putin, you're almost in a casino thinking, I can't place a bad bet here. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden he did place a bad bet. And just when when he thought there's really nothing I can do that would get the West organized, that would get the West act together. And then he found the thing that he could do that did get their act together. Um, and so, you know, I get it, I, you know, from Putin's perspective, I understand why he thought the way he thought. And he had reason to think that. Um, but uh, fortunately, from my, my own you know, perspective, uh, you know, the West finally woke up and said, oh, OK, that's that's enough. Elena. Yeah, I mean, it's if the the view of Putin as this benevolent agent goes back to even Bush, I think, who said he looked into his eyes and saw his soul. Um, I don't know how far he looked, but I doubt that the, the, there is any there there. But um, but um, yeah. So and the other thing is uh, the fact that Russian intelligence, Russian Siloviki. Russian establishment views the West as basically the same as Russia in that, you know, the civil society is weak and the governance is corrupt and all the institutions are there just for show and they don't realize. And I think it goes back to the Cold War where um, Soviet ambassador would demand of the Washington Post not to publish something or would try to tell the administration, tell your newspapers not to write it. And the administration would say, we can't do that. You know, this is not how it's done. And the Soviets were sure that it's a lie. Of course you do that, but you do it for <laughs> your own reasons and you don't uh, do it for us, which is, you know, you're the bad guy. So this um, perception uh, of or this view of um, your adversary through the lens of what you know is true has been going on forever and it has been going in the West as well, right? Because everybody thought, you know, 1991, Soviet Union is gone. Immediately, everybody will jump feet first into democracy and institutions would spring up and, you know, political um actorship and engagement will prevail in the society that didn't happen and there's still a big divide between the two parts and i don't know that it's likely to change anytime soon but you know maybe you has a more optimistic view Hugh, what do you think i i don't have a more optimistic view and and i'm a little bit less generous i think than uh for the for the sake of argument than david is on this point of um, this being a forgivable mistake or an understandable mistake on Putin's part. I mean, I, I think this is um, a, a mistake that you that you make when you create a system and manage a bureaucracy that only really does what you want, you know, does something in accordance with what the boss already kind of thinks or knows, and that there was plenty of evidence that would suggest that the West would be more peeved and more united than, uh, you know, your perception of them as a decadent sort of latte drinking, do nothing collective or, you know, softies would uh, would have indicated. I mean, you, you look to the kind of growing momentum of reaction following MH17, following, uh, you know, the, the, the ramping up of, of forces, the increased flow of weapons, the increased flow of training, the, kill, uh, the, 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 the increased packages of sanctions following, you know, successive outrage, the um, uh, expulsion of X, Y, Z number of intelligence officers following the Skripal case, the diplomatic fallout following um, uh, the poisoning, uh, in, you know, the, the, the poisonings, uh, you know, of uh, uh, the the the, you know, the the spies and and so on. I mean, all all of this seems to point to me that well, the West is taking what we're doing reasonably seriously and it's escalating and. This then culminates, of course, in the West being willing to put its cards on the table as forces are building up, saying, look, we know what you're doing. We basically have your plan. You are going to invade. Please stop it. Dear world, look what's going on. We are denying you the element of surprise. So I, I, I don't think that he should have been surprised following all of that, that there was a unified reaction. And, and of course, what he did as well 
was that he forgot that the Ukrainians were ever saying this, right. and that they would be on TV, on Twitter, and whatever, saying, uh, "Hello, we're being invaded. Can you know, is, is anybody going to help us out here? And you know, w w what's going to happen at, at, at that point? I, mean, I, I think this is uh, a, a, an avoidable mistake on, on his part, and he's fallen into it because he's drank his own Kool Aid." And, I, and I, I'm going to add two comments for you. One is uh, last fall we had a number of shows on the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, we had John Darby, who was the former director of operations for NSA, uh, join us live in the studio. Uh, we had the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, the Honorable Mr. Ron Moultrie. And we also had the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. And all three of those individuals were obviously in the room for many of the discussions about uh, delivering intelligence to not only the Biden administration uh, and the various elements of the National Security Council, but also America's uh, allies and partners around the world. And the sequencing that they talked about of sharing intelligence with uh, uh, all of the governments that were on, on board with uh, speaking out against Putin was dramatic. I mean, a dramatic amount of sharing of information, allowing the diplomats to sequence the response, or the response uh, from each of the countries so it was a unified uh, voice. The other thing I'll comment on, uh, you, you just mentioned that Ukrainians have a say in the matter, right? I have been astounded at the messaging discipline of every single individual that's ever gotten on a, a television camera uh, in Ukraine about their unified calls for what it is they face and what they need from the West and the rest of the world to help them defend democracy against this invasion by, by the Russians. Uh, so the title of your article speaks volumes about this overall topic, the Autocrats Intelligence Paradox. What lessons should uh, listeners learn from Russia's strategic intelligence failures and Putin's failure to apply intelligence, even, even, as, a, even as a career intelligence practitioner uh, as we go forward? And, and are there any, any instructive lessons, and this is you know, for America, for American political leaders, uh, instructive lessons that American leaders should take from this case study? And unfortunately, we, we're closing in towards the end of the hour. I'm going to ask... Uh, our, our station owner, if we can go just maybe an extra five minutes or so. Uh, but uh, let's get to this question, and then I'll ask all of you to sort of give us some closing thoughts. And uh, Hugh, why don't we start with you? Uh, yeah, well, to, to keep it relatively short as time uh, runs away from us, I mean, we, we we decided on the autocrats intelligence paradox as a title because it seemed to be a strange thing that these creatures survive in their job because they have this extensive and pervasive and well-funded and capable intelligence apparatus. But the more they, dip, the, the, the more they do that, the, 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 the sort of thinner the base of the pyramid gets and the more likely it is to tip over. And you know, I guess, so I guess you know, the main takeaway is, you know, dear leaders, don't put yourself in that situation. Um, and one of the ways I think that you can ensure not putting yourself in that situation is to reflect perhaps on the, uh, on the statement that the uh, former... Uh, chief of uh, SIS, MI6, Sir Morris Oldfield, um, on what he told, uh, I think it was James Callaghan, the foreign secretary, when they first met. And he was asked, oh, so what do you, what's your job then? And, and his response was, sir, my job is to bring you unwelcome news. And I think, you know, as a leader, you need a Morris Oldfield. Uh, Elena? I think also uh, from the experience of the Israeli intelligence after the um, Yom Kippur War, where they had to set up a separate department that will counter the analysis of the mainstream intelligence in that, um, you know, it broadens your perspective and um, sets your filters wider so you can be more receive, you know, more able to receive unwelcome news, but also to interpret them correctly. And I think we should start worrying when Russian intelligence fixes their um, analysis section because right now it's not you know it it cannot be compared to their um, active measures or operations or um, intelligence gathering um, and it has always been their uh, weak point and you know it's probably likely to remain like that for the foreseeable future as long as there is an autocrat on top of it yeah and david uh, yeah, I would, I would, um, I would emphasize that theme um, in that you know intelligence assessments. Uh, if we're if we're looking at the West, um, and I'll just speak for the U.S. in particular because that's what I know. 
um, but I suspect the UK and, and, and other Western uh, governments are, are, are similar, is that intelligence assessments are offered in good faith, uh, as Hugh suggested, even if it's not what the leader wants to hear or what's, what's expecting to hear. And uh, it's such an important difference uh, you know, and I think we need to we need to really sort of understand the professional expertise uh, that you, and, and, and have uh, educated intelligence consumers, you know, because a lot of times people get put in these positions where they are now consumers of intelligence, but they don't know what it can do for them. They don't know the limits of intelligence. Um, and I think we instead of just rocking up and being like, hey, here's your brief, you know, what is intelligence? What can it do for you? Um, I think that's really important. But I also wanted to say something about the, the role of the USIC at, at the working level, um, because there were, were two questions. First is, if, is Putin going to invade? And if so, when? Uh, and then second, can the Ukrainians last? And so we should pat ourselves on the back in the IC for getting the first one re really dead on. Um, but we actually made the same analytical error that Putin did. Uh, Putin thought that the Ukrainians couldn't last, and we thought that as well. And uh, you mentioned having Lieutenant General Barrier on your show, the DIA director. Uh, and he said, I believe, in public testimony um, that, um, uh, that, that, hey, we got that wrong. And, it, and it, it gets about the will to fight. And so, you know, how do you assess uh, a, a country's will to fight? And of course, you know, John, you and I spent our, our time of service you know, in the Iraq, uh, Somalia, Afghanistan, you know, where, where nobody wants to fight. And so you give them all, you lavish all of this training and resources on them. And then at the first whiff of a bullet, everybody's like, I'm out of here. Right. And so we, I think, um, I mean, it's a longer conversation, but I think that we, we might've let those experiences over the last 20 years in the so-called GWAT um, uh, color our assessment of the Ukrainians and we got it wrong. Um, but the point is now, I think number one, we're fixing it. And number two, uh, as General Barrier said, look, we've got some homework to figure out how we do a better job uh, assessing people's will to fight from an intelligence perspective. Yep. And we're closing in on the end of the show here. I'd like to ask each of you for just maybe one minute, uh, final thoughts on your article or on Russian intelligence failures, the situation in Ukraine, whatever you'd like to share with our listeners. Elena, I'd like to start with you. Sure. I just hope that, you know, the collective West continues to support Ukraine and the news about the German agreement to send the tanks is very welcome. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, stating that they're going to send their own Abrams um, is also. Um, and I just hope that other states around the world, namely Israel, one, uh, will do a better job of supporting Ukraine and um not thinking that being on the good side of Russia means anything, right? Because it's not. Right. There are no good sides of Russia to be in. <laughs> and Hugh. Yeah, thanks. I'd, I'd definitely echo Alan's uh, uh, comments there. And, and I suppose I, I'd say that in, in a sense that there is a good news intelligence story here. And I think the West has used intelligence very well in marshalling its own population um, broadly speaking, uh, to, uh, to to support its actions, diplomatic and military, in the face of, of Russian aggression. And I, I think there are uh, lessons here that should be learned about you know, uh, intelligence and how it can you know, be, be used effectively and not just in the secret world, but in the public realm to enhance public debate, public discourse uh, in, in the face of you know, really, really nasty and brutal uh, in, invasions. And David. Uh, thanks. I think two quick points. Uh, the first is that, you know, for the for the U.S. intelligence community, uh, I want to see us get away from the idea that, uh, you know, where that where the secret information is, is where the answers are. Uh, and writing this article uh, and all the work, you know, that, at least that, that I've done uh, suggests that, you know, the delta between what happens in the secret facility and what outside experts know is closing really fast. It is. You know, yeah. the, the people that have the clearance and the people that don't, I, I bet you they would probably have similar assessments. And, you know, certainly there are exquisite collection capabilities that still exist and it's not the same. But at the strategic and maybe even the operational level, you know, reading what the Institute for the Study of War or some some really good Twitter threads are putting out, I think shows you, uh, oh boy, you know, secrets are not the key uh, to understanding what's going on uh, anymore. And then just, I guess, maybe to end on a, a personal note, um, you know, I've been, uh, I was actually getting ready to retire uh, when, uh, from, from the reserves 
when Ukraine uh, started, when, when the Ukraine war uh, kicked off here. Uh, and uh, it actually gave me sort of a new lease on on life, I think, and a new a new meaning, uh, because here we have, and you know, as Elena said, you know, a, a clear aggressor, a clear aggrieved party, war crimes. You know, this isn't just some. Uh, well, this is a messy civil war, uh, and maybe we should get involved, but oh, maybe we shouldn't. And I don't want to own the civil war. And should we have the national guard, you know, with boots on the ground around some place we don't understand? Uh, you know, this is this is a very clear uh, question. You know, how do we know when wars end? In the Middle East or in East Africa, we, we have no idea. But, but we, we know that the war ends in uh, in Ukraine. You know, when are, it's just the question: Are there Russians on Ukrainian territory? Yes. Okay, we're not done. Are are they 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 on Ukrainian territory? No. Okay, we're finished. And and that sort of you know, as 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 a 23 year practitioner, I've never had that kind of clarity in my career. And so having this kind of moral clarity, I think, is important. And I think why. Uh, the West and, you know, people on social media and even, you know, average citizens are still very, uh, very, very engaged in supporting Ukraine uh, because it shouldn't be a hard call at all. And I think what we can do as as scholars is, is use this this access that we have uh, to to write about understanding the war and its its intelligence dimensions. And I think that can be a, a part of our contribution. That is a fantastic summary from all three of you. Thank you. Uh, th- we, unfortunately, we have hit the uh, the hard stop here for our show today. Dr. David Geo, Dr. Hugh Dillon, and uh, doctoral candidate Elena Grossfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. Thank you, John. And thanks to Andrew Cotilla for uh, for linking us up. That's right. That's right. Uh, and that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. I do want to give a quick shout out to my friend Ed Lord. Uh, I wish him a speedy and full recovery. Uh, thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.